Hello, my name is John Lovering, and I am the host of Audio Theater, heard from 6 to 8 p.m. on Tuesday evenings. On the last Tuesday of each month, from 6.30 to 8 p.m., I produce a live storytelling broadcast called True Tales Radio. Our announcer is Amy Antonucci, and our MC is Pat Spaulding. Each month we have a different theme and invite members of our Seacoast community to come on in and tell a personal experience true story centered around that theme to our in-studio and on-air audiences. You are about to hear a rebroadcast of True Tales Radio that has been edited to one hour. If you would like information about the show or on how you become a storyteller, please email truetales, T-R-U-E-T-A-L-E-S, one word, at wscafm.org. We are also on Facebook at True Tales Radio. Thank you and enjoy this hour of local storytelling on Portsmouth Community Radio, WSCALP 106.1 FM. Next up, Courtney Brooks. She's the Community Outreach Coordinator for the New Hampshire SPCA, an animal lover for as long as she can remember. Courtney feels tremendously blessed to work for such a worthy organization. She lives with an odd couple, a Dachshund named Johanna and a retired racing greyhound named Con. Courtney's story tonight will elaborate on the life lessons learned from my adopted pets. Courtney? So I have worked for the New Hampshire SPCA for over four years now, and a lot has happened to me since I began working there. I've learned how to care for a variety of different animals, from dogs and cats, rabbits and rats, birds, and even hedgehogs. Never an iguana, though. I think I'm missing out on something there. (laughs) I've I've seen the unbridled enthusiasm of children wanting to help animals in any way they can. I've seen many a piggy bank, and my change-counting skills have increased dramatically. Lots of pennies. Not a day goes by where I don't realize how lucky I am to work for this organization. My first volunteering job was at my local shelter where I grew up in Shreveport, Louisiana. I fell in love with the dog there that our family eventually adopted, but I will never forget the adoption counselor at the desk saying, you like this dog? Well, honey, you have four days to adopt her. I knew what that meant then, but at 12 years old, I didn't realize the severity of the pet overpopulation problem in this country. Shelters everywhere, but particularly in the South and the Midwest, are overcrowded and underfunded. The common solution is to put a time limit on a shelter animal's stay. So imagine my delight walking into work each day now and seeing the animals on our adoption floor and knowing that they're not going anywhere until they find their forever homes. We are extremely proud to advertise ourselves as an open admission, unlimited stay facility. How did we achieve this? Well, we owe it all to our community. We are an independent nonprofit that receives no help from the government. We also like the term social profit organization because we are constantly striving to better our community through outreach and education. We are not affiliated with the ASPCA, which is a common misconception, nor are we related to any of the other shelters in the state. Although we share the same great mission, we are completely independent of one another. So we owe it all to the people. Our community built our current facility and they sustain all of the programs and services we offer to the public. In addition to help from the community, New Hampshire legislation has helped us tremendously. New Hampshire is a great state in many ways, we all know that. But we we are also a leader in certain animal welfare issues. We were the first state in the country to achieve quote unquote, no more homeless pets, which is essentially a no kill status. Peter Marsh, a New Hampshire attorney and activist, blazed our trail to no-kill status in the 1990s. His model leans heavily on a non-mandatory, publicly funded spay-neuter program that targets the low-income communities and families that Marsh's research determined to be the source of the majority of animals entering the state's shelters. According to a Best Friends Animals Society article, Peter's analysis of the impact of targeted spay-neuter services states, that spaying or neutering five animals per 1,000 people in low-income areas will reduce shelter intake by as much as 33% over a five-year period. So to recap, over the past four years, I've learned a great deal about caring for animals and animal welfare legislation. Oh, and counting change. That, for many, would be quite enough. 
But for me, the greatest thing I have learned from working with animals is to try and absorb their wonderful, natural, and sometimes very ordinary characteristics daily. Animals teach us lessons every day if we only remember to stop and listen. So without further ado, here are a few lessons my animal friends have taught me over the years. How to share. My greyhound has a luxurious bed. My dachshund has a luxurious bed. Both of these beds are the sizes of the respective dog breeds that they were created for. However, I used to find myself irked when I would see my dachshund consistently commandeering the greyhound bed, a bed that she and 10 like-sized friends could easily lounge on without even touching one another. So while my dachshund made herself comfortable, my greyhound would stand idly by watching and then would try and squeeze himself into the dachshund bed. It was just a mess. I don't know if any of you know what greyhounds look like, but they're extremely spindly. Limbs were just jutting out every which way, and his head spilled over the side of the bed, making him look like a seasick sailor. I used to intervene at that point. I would shoo my dachshund out of the bigger bed to make room for my sad, squished greyhound. But then I noticed something. Even when my dachshund wasn't in the room, my greyhound would still choose her bed. He would awkwardly stuff himself into it and contentedly fall asleep. So I eventually realized, who am I to choose? They both had clearly worked out a great little arrangement between themselves. They went back and forth between beds, and it didn't matter which one they were laying in. Oftentimes, they slept side by side, stuffed into the smaller bed. It was a glorious day when I finally realized I should be okay with the fact that my dogs were sharing nicely. How to imagine. Time is a uniquely human concept. I often wonder what my dogs must think as I'm rushing around the house getting ready for work, squawking at them to hurry up and do their business outside already. I must look like a complete idiot, really. Lately, now that the weather has gotten warmer, I've noticed my greyhound going up to a particular open window and just standing there for a really long time. He just stands there and looks out the window. We all know that dogs love to look out the window. But the other day, I decided to join him. I sat down next to him and took the time to gaze outside with my four-legged friend. And for a brief, beautiful moment, everything slowed down. I tuned out the noise, and I got lost in a daydream. Animals teach me that meaningful experiences don't always involve conversation. A quiet afternoon with a playful cat or a lazy dog shows me that there's more to relationships than words. Just being together, watching, listening, and caring for one another is enough. How to beam. I say beam because it's more than a smile. When my dogs greet me at my door, there's no greater feeling. Whether I've been gone two hours or two minutes, their boundless enthusiasm is the same. Nothing makes me light up more than seeing a wagging tail. It reminds me to remember the little things in life, to notice kindness, to count my blessings, to get excited when a loved one calls or visits. Since I have no tail to wag, a genuine smile is the best way to get this message across. How to step up. I have learned patience, kindness, and responsibility from my pets. I am also accountable for them. I know that my dogs appreciate a routine and that I need to stick to that routine. Owning a pet can help both adults and kids realize the importance of reliability and how nice it feels to be needed and to have purpose. How to make friends. How many of you have heard the phrase, dogs know if you're scared of them? I have. Whether or not it's true to animal lovers, and certainly to people who are afraid of dogs, it seems true. So what's the lesson here? I've learned to recognize energy over verbal communication. If I don't understand someone, I resist the urge to put my hackles up, so to speak. I remember to smile at strangers, and I look out for people who seem uncomfortable in new surroundings. I've learned it's okay to make the first move. How to play. A Huffington Post article recently stated that outdoor play is beneficial for motor development, vision, cognition, vitamin D levels, and mental health. If all that isn't enough to get me outside, I think of the unmistakable joy on my dog's faces when I pull the leashes out of the closet. Dog walking started as a chore for me, but now it's a way for me to decompress after a long day. Additionally, my greyhound loves squeaky toys. I've learned to cherish how loudly I laugh when watching him bound around the yard, squeaking his toy with all his might. 
I also make a game of stretching with my dogs. Whenever they begin to stretch, I join in. And if it weren't for their regular downward dogging around the house, my muscles would considerably be much achier. To not be afraid to get dirty. My dachshund likes to roll in the smelliest, foulest mess she can find in the yard. It's one of her favorite things to do. I've heard that it might be an adaptive trait to help dogs disguise their predator scent, but I don't buy it. The only thing my dachshund hunts is kitchen crumbs. And while I'm not going to be rolling around in my yard anytime soon, her unabashed joy in getting a little dirty reminds me to stop trying to be perfect and just let things go. How to be gentle. In my adult life, I've encountered personal and professional circumstances where aggressive tactics are encouraged. While that may work in some settings, animals remind me that more significant headway is often made by being gentle. Animals demand a gentle touch and they react negatively if people are too loud or harsh around them. I've learned that slowing down and having a gentle demeanor when interacting with people always works wonders. How to protect my loved ones. Dogs in general have been known for being able to guard people and their possessions. However, I'm not interested in the guarding so much as the fierce loyalty behind it. Working with animals and seeing interactions between them reminds me of the importance of family. We each only have one, and despite heartaches and challenges, we stick together. And finally, how to love unconditionally. Perhaps this goes without saying, but I think all animal lovers know that it's true. My dogs love me as much as when I'm sad or tired as they do when I'm in a great mood. The style of love I've learned from them, warm, generous, active, and loyal, is the kind of love I strive to show in my own life. Animals, no matter the kind, bless our lives with their gracious presence, and they teach us to love without a regret and live with wild abandon. Thank you. Thanks, Courtney. That story really made me wish I liked dogs better. <laughs> Pat Galloway lives in Elliott with her husband, Ted, her father, Ed, and their dog named... Darn, it's not Fred. Uh, name is Leo. She returned to live in the house where she grew up to care for her parents. Um, her father, who still lives there, has been there for 60 years now. And Pat is going to tell us about a couple of critters <laughs> who, uninvited, found their way into her home. So sit back and listen to the rest of the story, Rodent Residence. <laughs> I live with my 86-year-old dad, my husband, Ted, and our Shih Tzu dog, Leo, in the house in Elliott where I grew up and where my dad has lived for 60 years. It's an old cave-style house, built in 1784, with a stone foundation, so there are plenty of openings for small creatures to enter the house. I've heard mice in the walls and ceilings before, but I was completely unprepared for what occurred last November. I was lying in bed one night when I heard loud gnawing and crunching coming from the downstairs entryway. I snuck down the stairs and realized the crunching was coming from the front hall closet. I carefully moved the shoes and other things from the front of the closet door and opened it. I kind of heard something rustle around a bit while I was moving things, but I didn't think anything of it at the time. Once I opened the door and turned on the closet light, I could see that something had been chewing on the bottom of the door, but chewing on the outside of the door like it was trying to get into the closet. I realized that the rustling sound must have been the creature hiding from my moving things away from the front door. I carefully started lifting things away from the stairway newel post, which had coats hanging on it, and something dashed out, stepping on my bare foot as it ran by me. It felt big, like a squirrel. And I thought, wow, a squirrel must have entered the house and is trying to get out. Knowing I'd never be able to find it in the dark with everyone sleeping, I went back to bed figuring I'd look for it in the morning. In the morning, I started looking for it. My son Ben and his girlfriend Cassidy had recently moved into the efficiency apartment up over our garage and had several boxes that wouldn't fit in the apartment and were being stored downstairs in the guest room. I figured I'd start looking for the creature there and began lifting boxes off the bed onto the floor and pushing them towards the breezeway. 
closer to their apartment so they could sort through them. I noticed that several of the boxes were labeled dirty clothes and started moving those towards the washing machine. As I was pushing one of the boxes along the floor with my foot, a large brown rat jumped out through the handhole and took off into the kitchen. I realized the squirrel was actually a large rat and that I had just had my hands in the handholes of that box. Ew. <laughs> so now I knew that the creature was a rat. I've had pet rats in the past, Starla and Luna, best rats in the world, intelligent, affectionate, wonderful companions. I didn't want to kill a rat. Really, I don't want to kill anything. So I sent an email to the Elliott Animal Control Officer, who is very nice, and let me borrow have a heart trap in the past to ask if I could borrow a small one for a rat. She said, all we have are large traps, and really, you're going to want to kill that rat. She said, they're very destructive and can do a lot of damage in a short amount of time. She said she had a rat in her basement, and it was awful. She said, you should get one of those traps with poisonous bait and put it near where you think he is. So when my husband got home, we went to Home Depot and bought two big clear plastic traps with poison bait deep inside, plus a couple of kill traps, and went home and set them up near different good hiding spots downstairs. That night, I started hearing crunching again, only this time it was right in the upstairs hallway just outside my bedroom door. Oh. <laughs> I ran downstairs and got one of the big plastic traps and put it in the upstairs hallway. I could hear crunching all night and could barely sleep because he was right outside my door, which I had closed and locked. <laughs> in the morning, I opened the door and crept into the hallway and saw that he had been ripping up pieces of the carpet and gnawing on the wall paneling making a nice little nest inside the bait trap. <laughs> he seemed to be hiding in the vents all around the walls of the upstairs hallway, the heating vents, because sometimes we could hear him walking along the top of the tines. The following night, we went the whole night without any rat sounds, not a peep. So even though the bait in the trap didn't look eaten at all, we thought that maybe the rat licked the poison bait and died. We had also put two kill traps with peanut butter upstairs and neither of them had been tripped either. So we thought, okay, guess he died. We'll try to find him in the heat vents later. That day we were gone all day visiting family. When we got home, we needed to start making dinner and didn't have time to look for the rat. While making dinner, I heard scratching coming from the breezeway. Our dog, Leo, was scratching at one of my son's boxes. I called my husband Ted over and we slowly opened the box and sure enough, the rat was hiding in the box. We thought, perfect, we got him in a confined area. We put duct tape over the handholes so he couldn't escape and Ted put one of the kill traps in the box with peanut butter on it. Then we closed it up, taped it shut. No way was the rat getting out of there and once he got hungry, well, that would be the end of him. I went back to making dinner, cringing, waiting for the horrible snap. All was quiet. We sat down to dinner in the living room, watching a movie while we ate our usual dinner and a movie. Everything was peaceful. After dinner, Ted was starting to clean up when he caught something out of the corner of his eye moving through the kitchen. Only it didn't look like a rat. It looked like a ferret. He came into the living room with a bewildered look on his face and said, Patty, there's a ferret in the kitchen. <laughs> I'm so confused at this point that I actually begin to imagine our neighbors putting their unwanted pets through our dog door. <laughs> we went on the breezeway to check the box and saw that the rat had actually chewed a hole in the side of the box and escaped. We looked around for the ferret, but didn't see him. I started doing the dishes in the kitchen and suddenly heard a terrible squealing coming from the breezeway. I thought maybe the rat got caught in the trap and it only maimed him and he was screaming in pain. I ran in 
and there was the ferret wrestling around on the floor. I think, oh crap, the ferret licked the poison in the bait trap and is in the throes of death. <laughs> Kill the ferret. I tried to get closer, and when I did, I realized that the ferret was wrestling with the rat. <laughs> there was a big fight going on between them, and I called Ted to come quick. The ferret was dragging the rat here and there, wrestling with it, and then dragging it more, under the couch and then behind the couch. Then something ran into the kitchen. Ted and I were both in the breezeway, and as we turned to follow it into the kitchen, the ferret comes from the kitchen heading back to the breezeway and stops dead as we're coming toward her. We stare at each other for a minute. She's pretty tiny, smaller than the rat, and has very light brown fur with white under her neck and belly, and she's so cute. <laughs> she just looked at us and then ran by us, unafraid, back to the breezeway, grabbed the rat, and took it through the kitchen and under the stove. <laughs> I got a flashlight, and as I'm laying on the floor, shining the flashlight under the kitchen stove, I can see the ferret running back and forth from one side to the other with the rat in her mouth, trying to lift it up the sides of the kitchen wall. The rat was too heavy, so the ferret abandoned it under the sink and went into the wall, up the wall, and we could hear it scampering through the ceiling, on top of the ceiling tiles. It was late. So we decided that we'd deal with the dead rat under the sink the following day. The next day, Ted pulled the stove out, but the rat was gone. He did see a good-sized hole where the gas line comes into the house to the stove, and there was blood around the hole. We figured the ferret came back and actually managed to pull the rat up the wall and out that hole, even though the rat was bigger than she was. Well, come to find out, our ferret is a small weasel. We think it's a female least weasel, the smallest of the weasel family because she was so tiny. Wikipedia says that despite its small size, the least weasel is a fierce hunter, capable of killing a rabbit five to ten times its own weight. All we know is she's cute as a button, apparently killing all the rodents in our house, and we're keeping her. <laughs> Steve Diamond, coincidentally, also a homesteader and a lifelong gardener. Oh. Uh, he studied anthropology at UNH and is now a systems administrator here at Portsmouth Community Radio, along with Amy Antonucci. He produces New Hampshire Making Waves radio program, heard here each Saturday from noon to one. I'd also like to acknowledge that here in our radio audience tonight is who? My family. <laughs> your family. Including my mother, who is uh, it's featured in this one. Oh, and is not your grandmother, who's celebrating her 99th birthday, also here? That's right. That's Ooh. pretty darn special. <laughs> so Steve is going to tell us his story, Drunk as a Skunk. Let's hear more. All right. So before I get to the details of the classic Diamond family story about drunk skunks, uh, I have a little more background on what this inspired in me and the direction I took it and uh, sort of who I am and how I got to this story. Um, so not to be patronizing because I'm going to define a few words here. You probably have heard them before, but maybe you didn't really know what they meant because I didn't really know what they meant before I studied anthropology and things like that. So anthropology is about studying human culture and its evolution, particularly before written history for the whole two million years of how long that is. And a lot of that is about the oral tradition, what we like to call it. It's about stories that still exist. So we'll get back to that idea. And I also am involved with Amy in homesteading, a new trend in homesteading to be precise, called permaculture. Maybe some of you have heard of it, uh, which you can think of as attempting to do permanently sustainable agriculture. And so as I'm doing this kind of work around the farm, I sometimes get these new insights into some very old expressions. And I come up with some plausible, educated guesses for where these idioms might have come from. And I looked up what idiom means, by the way, in case you aren't sure. It's, it's, the dictionary says it's an expression whose meaning is not predictable from the usual meanings of its constituent elements. 
So it's like a metaphor. It's, it's not literally true. If someone is a chip off the old block, that doesn't mean there's a chip or a block involved. It means he's <laughs> like his father, right? And somehow we all know about these things. Um, so what astounds me about these kinds of expressions um, is how agriculturally rooted our language still is. Um, I went to UNH, and UNH was a, uh, an agricultural school. It was founded that way for most of its history. That's what it was. Um, so it's not that long ago, about 150 years. Probably none of us, or maybe one or two at the most, who happen to be here, would own a horse or a horse cart, yet we all know what it means to put the cart before the horse, right? We know that the early bird gets the, gets the worm, so we must make hay while the sun shines. Everyone knows it's best to not put all your eggs in one basket or to count your chickens before they're hatched, especially if you've left a fox guarding the hen house. <laughs> Next time, you'd resolve to have all your ducks in a row. <laughs> <clears throat> but other expressions have at least partially lost their meaning. So this is the, the premise of my little talk here. It's about the meaning that I think exists behind some of these expressions, including drunk as a skunk, which I'll get to. Um, so the connotation of the whole uh, chip off the old block expression as I'm splitting wood, uh, I think about how uh, New Hampshire was mostly deforested by the early European settlers who came here. And this makes a lot of sense because if you visualize, you, you've probably seen the old houses around here. You have no insulation whatsoever. You have fireplaces in almost every room because they're 10% efficient. That's one-eighth as efficient as a new stove would be, 10%. Um, so they needed 10 plus cords, and a cord is 4 feet by 4 feet by 8 feet. Picture this. It's like this room with nothing but wood in it. Okay? Um, and if you ever tried splitting wood, it's not very easy. I personally own a 6-pound mall, so the head of it is 6 pounds, and I have another one that's 8 pounds. If you buy one in the store, it's always pretty much 6 pounds unless you special order it or something. The Amish have these 16-pound malls which is pretty serious. I mean, it's almost impossible just to lift it if you're not really in good shape. And swinging it over your head, it doesn't sound like a big number, but it's a lot of weight. Um, of course, the Amish, they don't believe in using modern uh, gas-powered hydraulic splitters like we would resort to now. So picture them trying to bring in their 10 cords of wood, and half of it is too knotty to split. So as I'm splitting this wood, I'm thinking, okay, a chip off the old block just doesn't, doesn't mean simply that you're like your father. You have this, these gnarly things that you can't get a chip off of. And uh, to me, it must mean he's uh, gnarly and tough, like his old, old man. That's my guess. Anyway, so um, moving on to the next expression. Um, we all know it's a, it's a good idea to hedge a bet. By the way, I didn't know about all these. I researched them last night because I was real interested. <laughs> this is because, because good fences make good neighbors. That doesn't quite make sense, but I'll explain. So installing fencing is a lot of work, for those of you who might have tried doing it. Uh, and having inadequate fencing often results in animals heading down the road to eat your neighbor's tulips. Um, so I was researching the origins of these phrases um, came across something about how hundreds of years ago in England, most farmers rented their land because land was quite scarce. Um, yet the careful ones still planted hawthorn shrubs. These have woody thorns between one inch and two inches long um, as a hedge. That's what it was called, a hedge, as your fencing. And after decades of tending these things, eventually it got really effective. So that's what they had, that's what they did. And thus we still consider a hedge as ins insurance against those unfortunate occurrences. So once again, how, how do we somehow know? We have this oral tradition where we know what these words, what these phrases mean. We don't have stories anymore from 
the 1600s. But we, we have passed down these expressions that we still know what they mean. And that's sort of the history that we still have from then. Um, we, should, we all know that it's not a good idea to look a gift horse in the mouth. You might not know why. <laughs> uh, it's because a horse's gums tend to recede as it gets older. And you can tell that it's getting old. And if you uh, have worked with a horse your whole life, you're really related with that horse, all you could do is eat your horse. So you give your horse to somebody else to take care of it or eat it, I guess. So you're not supposed to look a gift horse in the mouth. Just accept the darn horse and move on. <laughs> <coughs> and I finally will get to the drunk as a skunk expression. <coughs> as I was uh, researching the origins of this, all the random people on the forums would say, well, obviously, that's not literal. Skunks don't drink alcohol. Uh, surely it's just an expression based on the fact that it's a rhyme, or that, that it's alliterative. Little do they know. <laughs> um, so do skunks frequently wander around drunk in broad daylight? If you grew up where I did in suburban New Hampshire, Dover, the answer to that question is yes. <laughs> Gardeners have always exchanged tips and tricks for solving issues. One very common one, if you happen to be a gardener, you would certainly relate to this, is slugs eating your young seedlings. My mother, who is still an avid gardener despite the story I'm about to impart, heard that if you bury a cup partially in the ground and put some cheap beer in it, countless slugs will crawl in for a drink and then drown. It turns out that's entirely accurate. Unfortunately, the part of the story that was not passed on from <laughs> whoever told us about this, uh, like many alleged solutions, unintended consequences were involved. Nearby skunks quickly discovered the generous marinated servings of their favorite food. <laughs> Thus, on more than one occasion, I ran into these generally nocturnal creatures weaving their way up the garden path in broad daylight. <laughs> Once while weeding near the edge of the garden, I discovered I was nose to nose with a very large and clearly drunk porcupine. <laughs> but many skunks were the main problem, who came for the drinks but stayed to pull down each stalk of sweet corn. My mother's next problematic solution was to trap the skunks. Of course, getting a skunk into a have-a-heart trap is the easy part. <laughs> My mother, who is generally very proper and concerned about her appearance, would put on her grimiest clothes, complete with shower cap, and sneak up to the cage carrying an old blanket. As long as, as the skunk was scurrying around instead of looking at you, or heaven forbid, turning the other way, you were fine. By the way, I later used this particular bit of knowledge at a camp job, where early one morning a prowling skunk was scaring, and even worse, waking the campers. So I threw small rocks at it until it went away. <clears throat> so my mother would then wrap the cage with the blanket, carry it to the car, slam the trunk, and chauffeur the creature far off into the woods. Once she came across a bunch of guys who had been drunk as skunks themselves the night before and were now retracing their joyriding steps to recover the pieces of their truck they had left behind. No doubt they enjoyed her story as she asked them to refrain from making any startling movements. Once, after releasing the skunk, she was all ready to snatch up the cage and head back home. But then the skunk looked back, expectantly, so she froze. Another skunk that had then not previously noticed then wandered out of the cage. All in all, my mother ended up relocating about a dozen skunks by this process. Now that's dedication to gardening. Yes. <laughs> Yes, that is dedication indeed. To introduce our announcer, Amy Antonucci, <laughs> who 
was a long time Portsmouth Community Radio volunteer and homesteader in Barrington. You may have heard her tell a story about moving bees a couple of month, months ago, and perhaps you thought, well, that's enough of a pest story. If you thought that, you're wrong. It was just the beginning. Amy is back to tell us more in her story, A Paternal Pest. Hi, everyone. Um, got my water here. My throat is a little off today. Oh, my gosh. Oh, thanks, John. Okay. I'm going to really try to stand in the right place here. So I'm sort of the odd one out today in terms of my topic, as you will see. Um, back when John Levering and I were coming up with the show themes, we came up with this pets and pests idea, and then he added in parentheses, human and non-human. I thought, human, hmm, got me thinking. <laughs> I've had many animals in my life, and I've had a, my share of pests in home and garden, but there is one pest that really rises to the top lately, and that's who I'm going to tell the story about. Um, first, for a little background for the heart of it here. So, I hadn't been very close to my family as an adult, which was really for the best. My, I come from a family, an Irish mother and a Sicilian father, and they really brought the concept of dramatic to like a whole new level. Um, and I'm a pretty sensitive person. I was a quiet kid, and it was really too much for me. So they were also, eventually, as I got older, they were kind of locked in this codependent death grip that made me kind of unnecessary anyway in the whole relationship. So I was doing my own thing, and that was good. Then, about six years ago, my mother died. And my father was extremely lost without her. Remember that codependent thing? So my training as a Sicilian daughter really kicked back in at that point, And I could not stop myself from trying to help my dad and be there for him. Amazingly, this anxious little old Sicilian guy settled into a new routine and kept on going. And we, he and I settled into a bit of a rhythm as well that was at least tolerable. However, after a couple years, I started to really worry about him. Things started to change, and it became apparent at his 80th birthday party. For the occasion, I threw him a party. About 35 of his friends came, and um, I created the John Antonucci 80th birthday party trivial pursuit quiz. <laughs> and I acted as a game show host for it. There were prizes and everything. It was really a lot of fun. Starting around question five, my father began trying to answer the questions. So I would ask, where did John go to college? And my father would yell out, oh, I know this one. <laughs> and we would say, well, we certainly hope that you do, but you're not eligible to win here tonight. And he'd quiet down for a bit, but then we'd get to question eight. Where did John meet his wife, Irene? He'd, oh, oh, I know where I met Irene. Again, we'd say, yes, we hope so. But then 11, what was John's eldest sibling's name? And he'd say, oh, I know my sister's name. Okay, okay, John. So I watched him really more, much more carefully after that. I even tried to talk to him about planning for his long-term care, and his answer was very consistent. He'd tell me, Amy, if they try to put me away, come down here with a gun and shoot me in the head. <laughs> and that was a good conversation stopper, if not a very practical plan. <laughs> So this is when I began to entertain the idea of moving him in with my partner, Steve, and I. Um, I brought him up for about a week as like a test run. This was uh, during Thanksgiving week a couple years ago. I figured we'd have some gatherings to go to, some things to do. He got bored really easily. So this would be a good try. Um, and this is what began the home pest invasion, which is the heart of my story tonight. <laughs> 
So the difficulties began before he even arrived. My father is a city boy. He grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and lived around Boston, Mass. the rest of his life, hence the odd accent. Um, driving him up from Chelsea, he began to get nervous around Kingston, New Hampshire, and Route 125, okay? <laughs> and it goes from, like, strip malls and gas stations and stuff to, like, country. He started to kind of mutter and grumble, and I could hear him going, oh, God, look at all these trees. Oh, God, look at all these trees. How do you know where you're going with all these trees? We actually love it because it's calm and peaceful and country, but, or as my father says, countrified. But this made him very nervous. We did make it home to Barrington despite the view-blocking trees, which is not at all a city, but it does have Caleb's Country Store. Maybe some of you have been there. My father was really excited about it, especially the cheese-tasting area. He loves cheese. <laughs> he loves it on bread or crackers, which actually is another thing he has in common with rodents. So, another connection. So, we brought a few different flavors home to try, and that's pretty much all he wanted to eat the entire weekend. Um, and that included during Thanksgiving dinner. My partner's, my partner Steve's mother made a beautiful, fancy, delicious meal, which did not stop my father from poking Steve and saying, can you take away this food and bring me some cheese and bread? <laughs> he had always been a really social guy, my dad. And in our continuing efforts to keep him entertained, we invited some friends over. They also had family visiting for the holiday, and um, which included their daughter-in-law, Maria, who was originally from Peru, and their granddaughter, Petra. So my father, and she was like old enough to walk around a little bit. My father really actually enjoys meeting people from other countries and asking them about where they're from and things like that. So we thought this could actually be really kind of fun and entertaining for everyone. However, as soon as my father heard that Maria was from Peru, he made this immediate connection to the 1972 Andes flight disaster. <laughs> now, if you don't know, which at the time I didn't, but if you don't know about the 1972 Andes flight disaster, this is when a charter plane flight of um, 45 people crashed in the South American Andes mountains. It took two months to rescue them, and these survivors, there were 16 survivors, and they had to resort to cannibalism to survive. Okay. So it actually happened in Argentina, but that was close enough for my father, who immediately started saying, oh, Peru, that's where those people crashed and had to eat each other, which is quite shocking. Um, and he did not ask it once. He actually asked it five minutes later and five minutes after that, and then frankly, the next day and the day after that. But it really cut our visit short with these nice friends of ours who, despite their many attempts to discourage him from frightening, you know, their child, and <laughs> frankly, the rest of us, he would not stop. So with attempts at socializing going so poorly, we stayed at home more, which gave my father time to think and kind of ruminate. I had been handling his finances for about six months at this time, a situation which he knew was necessary but was really not comfortable with. He started asking me during the weekend about money, about bills, about his accounts. So to try to calm and reassure him, I kind of tried to treat him like an adult, and I pulled out his bank statement to look at. And he studied it really closely. He looked at one page, and then the next page, and he'd turn it over, and it was like it was a new page, and you'd look at that, and he'd turn it over, and it, oh my god, a new page! And he was muttering, and kind of, he's, I think I mentioned he was dramatic, he kind of rubbing his head, and oh, oh he's kind of grown, and he finally looked up at me, and he said, where's the 20? I said, the 20 what, Dad? And he kind of did more of the moaning, and he put his head up again. He said, the insurance. I said again, you know, what? What? Finally, he started banging his hand on the table and said, where's my 20 milligrams of insurance? 
At this point, he'd become agitated enough that we actually feared he might work himself into a medically dangerous state. So we wrested the paperwork away from him and distracted him with, you guessed it, bread and cheese. (laughs) (laughs) So it might be needless to say, but by the time I drove my father back to Boston, it was pretty clear that even if he wasn't happy about it and didn't understand it, it was really going to be best for all involved to give him a, a chance to get used to assisted living. Um, which is what we chose to do. And it's worked out much better than I expected. So I'm actually, I was tempted to close saying something like, I told the story as a way kind of to help other folks because I know I am far from alone in struggling with the responsibility of caring for an elderly parent. But the truth is it's really much more selfish and I think it helps my own sanity to tell these stories. Plus, it does turn out that maybe I did inherit a bit of that Sicilian-Irish drama after all. <laughs> Thanks, Amy. Everybody, good to see you all here. We're going to start out with Christine Kelly, who lives on the seacoast, is the president of Balance Business Performance, a consulting firm in Portsmouth that helps small to medium-sized companies grow bigger. She's also a speaker and storyteller who enjoyed telling a story on last month's True Tale radio program so much that she's back with another tale. Tonight, she'll tell us about her dining experiences during her honeymoon vacation on Martha's Vineyard. The title of Christine's story is Dining Delights. So let's offer a yummy welcome to Christine. Thank you. Thank you. So, um... This story happened at the beginning of my marriage, which is now ended, but the story lives on. (laughs) We got married in October and decided to uh, have our honeymoon on Martha's Vineyard, thinking it was the off-season, places won't be crowded, it'll be easy to get around, but the weather was still nice. We should have known something was going on from the start. When we left to head down there, we left early, and realized we forgot to cash a check. So we didn't have cash in our pockets. But we thought, well, hey, Martha's Vineyard is part of Massachusetts. In those days, there were no ATMs. Surely we can cash a check there. We take the ferry over, go to cash a check, and sure enough, no. They don't take any off-island checks. <laughs> so we get back on the ferry, go back to Hyannis, where my father lived, and he conveniently cashed one for us. By the time we got back to the vineyard, it was late. We checked in, we went to a restaurant for dinner, and we had to wait to be seated. They finally sat us almost an hour later, and we're sitting there, we're having a great time, enjoying the food, chatting, and gradually it dawned on us that it was getting a little quiet. We look around, there's no other diners. And in fact, behind us, all of the wait staff is standing there with their arms crossed, tapping their toes. <laughs> so we looked at each other, we smiled, and we, de- we did the only thing we could do. We ordered dessert. <laughs> so we figure, okay, well, you know, one night, one day, no problem. We spent the day touring the island, having fun, and we decided to go out to a fancy restaurant. And I was all of 22, so, you know, we got dressed up in these fancy clothes, went to, I think it was the most expensive place on the island, right on the water, and we walk in, and everyone's, you know, dressed really nice and sitting there regally in their tables by the water. We sit down, and there it was kind of funny. They were all smushed together a little bit. There wasn't much room in between, but it was comfortable enough. So again, we're eating, enjoying ourselves, and in comes an ambulance. The woman at the table next to us had, I don't know, um, had a, no. (laughs) No, it's not that bad. She (laughs) collapsed, and I heard she was all right at the end. So I had to shift my chair over because, I mean, there wasn't much room at all so that these ambulance people could go rescue her. Well, I do that, and the woman behind me starts going, Well, I never. And I thought it was something else. And I turned around, she's looking at me. Apparently, I had moved too close for her comfort. (laughs) 
So I, I, I mean, there was nothing I could do. This woman needed help. So off they take her. I shift back. The woman settles herself down. And we continue dining. Okay, that's two nights in a row. So the next night we thought, well, we're going to go low key. And in many places on the vineyard, I don't know if it's the same way today, but um, they're dry towns, so you have to bring your own bottle to a restaurant. And there was this cute little, you know, local Italian restaurant that we figured we'd try. And we go in, and sure enough, it was filled with locals. So we sit down, we go to the salad bar, get our salad, and in comes a family. And the two little boys, maybe they were five or six, they start running around in, th in throughout all the tables, screaming and hollering, which, you know, that, that was okay. That didn't bother me. What, <laughs> what bothered me was they went to the salad bar. Luckily, we had our salads. They start throwing the lettuce up in the air, and it lands on the floor. Now, you think that's bad. The mother went over, picked it up, and put it back. <laughs> so we're like, oh, my gosh, this is ridiculous. And they're running around again. So um, my then husband said, you know, I just need to ask them if maybe they can contain them a little bit. Well, the response was, well, they're locals. So we're like, okay. <laughs> so they're running around some more, and all of a sudden it gets really quiet. Little Johnny, one of the little boys, was over in the corner by the piano. Not only was he over there, he was relieving himself oh. on the piano. <laughs> at, at that point, we gave up. <laughs> we said, okay, we're out of here. And after that, the rest of our experiences, in and amongst us, we were laughing the whole time about what was happening. I mean, what are the odds? I mean, three really weird things happening at every restaurant we went to. So, did you have a question? Oh. <laughs> so, <laughs> we thoroughly enjoyed the trip. I don't know if it was in spite of or because of, it gave us a lot of uh, things to talk about. But those were our dining experiences on Martha's Vineyard. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> And you're listening to WSCA LP, 106.1 FM, Portsmouth Community Radio, broadcasting from our 909 Islington West End Studio, Portsmouth, New Hampshire. This is True Tales Radio. I'm your announcer, Amy Antonucci. And now back to introduce our next storyteller, MC Pat Spaulding. Next up, we have Lee Harvey from Kittery, Maine. Lee made his career as an architect for 30 years. He currently co-hosts with Ronnie Tamanio and Pamela Solenberger the WSEA program Don't Dis My Ability, which airs here on Tuesdays between 3.30 and 4.30 p.m. Lee will tell us about the unexpected drama that unfolded on a cruise that he and his wife Kelly took in the winter of 2004. Lee Harvey. Yeah, thank okay. you. Thank you. This story is, I, mean, I was trying to think of a title of this on my own after I wrote the brief synopsis, and my description was going to be two roads diverging in the Caribbean, you know, just because I didn't realize at the time how different my life was going to be after my stroke until I got back. It's taken me 10 years now to figure that out. On January 15, 2004, I had a stroke while on a Caribbean vac cruise with my wife, Kelly. I woke up at 4 a.m. to go to the bathroom and soon realized that my left side of my body was gone and wouldn't support me, so wound up on the floor. My wife called the ship's doctor and he kind of scratched his head and they don't really have the diagnostic equipment on a cruise ship to figure out what's going on with a stroke. So they took me off the ship on a stretcher on the island of Antigua and where they said they had CT scan equipment, which was true, but it was down for repair. So my wife called the trip insurance company that we'd hired, and they said, well, we got to get you out of there, and they ordered a medevac to come from Miami, or took me by jet from the island of Antigua to Miami, where I finally made it to the hospital the next day. So my three-hour window that they talk about in 
brain injuries is, was long gone at that point. So there was some permanent damage. So I, I guess the important part for me is that my career as an architect was gone. As I, I found out a few months later, my, this brain isn't quite flexible enough to do that anymore. And I had to discover what my plan B was going to be, what, which is what I call it, which takes a little quick thinking some days. But it, you know, life still has meaning to me, but it's considerably different from the life I had before. Outwardly, it's much different. I have trouble moving. I have trouble thinking sometimes, keeping my continuity of my thoughts. So, it, you know, I'm struggling here more than a little bit. Part that seems important for other people to know, though, is that the event happened as much to my wife and my daughter as it what did to me. Our daughter was at home at the time. My wife and I were on vacation. I didn't make it home for another almost eight weeks. They wouldn't let me fly. They were afraid my brain was going to explode in a commercial jet. So my wife, my daughter was 13 and had to get used to life kind of without the father that she'd known. So I couldn't work anymore. So my wife became the primary breadwinner and my primary caregiver. And she wound up having breast cancer and a mastectomy. And, you know, her health was going down too. So it eventually cost us our marriage, but, you know, it, uh, it's things you couldn't foresee at the time, you know, the changes. And it sounds terrible, but it really is not quite as bad as it seems. We still love each other and we'll go on in another way. But, it, uh, you know, if you want an experience to learn a lot from, it definitely was that. Knowledge with a fairly significant price, though. So, you know, it... Uh, I mean, I still talk to my wife and daughter about, you know, what we learned from it. And, you know, hopefully it's things that each of us can carry on in our life now. I mean, it's partly why I'm here tonight to make other people aware when you go on vacation, get the trip insurance. (laughs) 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 Yeah, I think that's, that's all I have. John Lovering would like to say a few words. Uh, yes, I just want to mention that um, I uh, engineer for Don't Dis My Ability and have for about five years now. And I've had the opportunity to uh, work with Lee Harvey and uh, the amount of courage that it took for him to do what he just did uh, is just incredible. Uh, this man has come so far since he has been on that show. He was uh, very much uh, withdrawn now he participates uh, in the program, interviewing people, and he uh, has a good sense of humor. He has to when you're working with Ronnie, and uh, and we have a we have a pretty good time. But uh, I just my heart goes out to him because I've I known I've seen him grow. And thank you, Lee. Thanks very much for what you did. From Selma, Alabama, would you please welcome storyteller Miss Catherine Tucker Windham? But we need to laugh together. Don't laugh at people. My father said you laugh with people. And you can never hate anyone you've really laughed with. Laughter binds people together. The most important L is loving. Loving. That God put us here to love each other to enjoy each other, to help each other, to laugh together, to learn together, to listen together, but to love each other. And there's nothing that says I love you more pleasantly and more plainly than storytelling. Everybody here has stories that you need to tell, and now is the time to do it. Tell stories and tell each one with love, ending with I love you. If you would like information about the show or on how you become a storyteller, please email truetales, T-R-U-E-T-A-L-E-S, one word, at wscafm.org. We are also on Facebook at True Tales Radio. 
local storytelling on Portsmouth Community Radio, WSCALP 106.1 FM.